0: Okay, so we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians. If you got your Bible open there, that's great. Uh, let's start with this. How many of you would say you had a good day yesterday? <laughs> yeah. I had a good day yesterday. Caleb had a great day yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> How many of you were tempted to think that that meant Jesus was going to come back yesterday? Yeah, nobody, right? Um, well, as odd as it might seem, that's pretty much the problem going on in the church in Thessalonica, as they were prompted uh, by Paul's second letter. They were thinking that removed from their situation, everything that was going on, everything that could be good, either Jesus was coming back because things were good or he was coming back because things were bad. Now we might be tempted, right? Because of the world that we're in to say, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. So Jesus has to come back right now, right? Now that is a real temptation. But I think, as we look through this letter, second thessalonians, we 're going to discover a bit of the similarities between the church there and the church in our day. So last week, we looked at First Thessalonians, and we saw that Paul, as he was writing, he had the privilege to see this church established, but his time there came to an abrupt stop because of persecution. Uh, so he had written to address some of the confusion that stemmed from the church, from the false teachers that were there uh, and to internalize some of the basic truths of the faith, like the second coming of Christ. And some time has passed as we come to this letter, and things are still a bit of a mixed bag for the Thessalonians. Um, On the one hand, they are persevering admirably through some difficult persecution. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast and faith." in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteousness of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So we've got a noble church undergoing suffering and enduring in a way that you or I would most certainly find challenging. But on the other hand, the church was still theologically confused and misunderstood The nature, timing, and purpose of Christ's return. And so Paul writes this second letter, a short follow-up, to help address some of these problems and to encourage them as they're persevering in their faith. So as we think of the structure, the outline of this letter, uh, the outline is pretty straightforward when it comes to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul introduces himself in the first two verses And then he turns to a section of thanksgiving and comfort for the persecuted church in Thessalonica. That's chapter one, verses three through 12. Verse 11 sums things up well. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So we've got the section of thanksgiving. And then into chapter two, he starts to get down to business. He's refuting claims about the day of the Lord. In chapter 3, he opens with a transitioning section in verses 1 through 5, where Paul asks for prayer for himself. And then in chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, he continues his instruction about Christ's return, and he addresses particular outgrowth of the Thessalonians' bad theology, their decision to stop working in light of the second... So it wasn't just that they stopped working because they knew that Jesus was returning. They stopped working and they were waiting. They were just waiting for Jesus to return. So it was like, okay, he's coming back. We know he's coming back. We're just going to wait on this and see what happens. And then in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, Paul closes the letter in classic style where he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. So... What is all contained in these three chapters? And we'll start thinking about the problem that Paul is addressing in the Thessalonian church. And from there, we're going to see Paul's letter to understand why they fell into this error. And finally, we're going to see at what we can take from this controversy ourselves. So, you know, thinking through, why did Paul address the Thessalonians? Why were they going through this? And then what can we learn in light of their circumstances so first we're going to look at the problem okay so what is the problem of the Thessalonian church? anybody just want to give a, a general guess thinking from what we covered last week what do you think the problem was for the Thessalonians They were moochers, So that's a good way to put it. They were like little leeches, right? So the idea really of what Paul is going to address as their problem was simply said as idleness. Okay, so if we look at chapter 3, let's look at verses 6 through 12. Paul says this. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves, an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons uh, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So idleness leading to mooching, right? The idea of like, we're just gonna wait for you to provide on everything that we've got here and we're not gonna do anything about it. We're just waiting, 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 waiting. So Paul says, get to work, okay? So consider some of the uh, Paul's seemingly meaningless acts of purchasing his own food. He, he buys his own food. He hands over coins to a merchant for something to eat. In that one action, what Paul's doing is, one, he's, he's paying for his food. Two, he's caring for the Thessalonian church and not being a burden to them. And then three, he's setting an example. So in other words, what we can learn from this is that even small actions that seem insignificant can have a tremendous meaning when we consider them rightly the small things we do can actually have great meaning. So the problem for them is idleness. So what causes idleness? Why why were they in this situation? Well, Paul says it's because the Thessalonians mistakenly thought that Jesus had already come back. They thought, okay, Jesus is back. We don't need to do anything. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the lord has come let no one deceive you in any way now that seems strange doesn't it (laughs) you think of it you could understand why they might stop working if jesus is coming back tomorrow you could be like okay he's coming We're good. (laughs) I don't need to do anything at this moment. But the error in view here is that someone suggested that the day of the Lord has already come, that Jesus is already back. So how could a persecuted people possibly think that Jesus had already come back? Quite possibly what was going on here was that a group of people who interpreted persecution as to quote Jesus saying the beginning of birth pains events that would occur just prior to his coming and say, okay, these, these birth pains, these events are happening right now. So that means Jesus is here. At least the beginning of the end has come, they thought. And so they could give up their daily labor. It's still kind of a a sketchy theological premise, right? There's not a lot to stand on. If we were thinking of it like a stool, right? We may have one leg, but we need two other legs to hold the stool up. But likely behind this is just a reality of human nature. If we can grab a theological reason not to work, then all the better, right? If we can say, I don't need to do this, praise the Lord, right? You know uh, this may hit glenn a little a little too close, right, but like the idea of retirement right <laughs> you get to retirement it 's like all right i 've earned my 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 dues now i 'm going to ride out this time right it 's interesting too. I can say when I got here to Hebron back in two thousand and eighteen, we only had twelve members in the church. There were like maybe a dozen people that came every Sunday. It was really, really small, really, really tiny, and a lot of the people that were here they um They had been doing the hard work of keeping the church afloat for years at that point. Not even just like a year or two, but years. It had been back in 2011. Yeah, so seven years prior to that, they had five members here. And they actually had a meeting to consider closing the doors, selling the building, and giving the assets to the members of the church. So like they got to that point. And then afterwards, they, they knew that the Lord was not done with them. And they decided, okay, we need to get to work to to make this come back to life in the Lord's power and strength. He's the only one that can do it, but let's labor well. So by the time I show up in 2018, there's 12, right? There's fruit, it's growing slowly and surely. Uh, But I can tell you in January, 2018, we had 12 members. February, 2018, we had 36, okay? So we tripled in our size in one month, okay? That was a lot, of, uh, a lot of like growth within attendance. It felt much different. But the reality of what that came to is that a lot of the people who had been here said, oh, now it's our time to just scooch back. We've got new people, there's new blood, let's give them the opportunity. And some of that was a really wonderful, I think godly fruit and mentality but other parts of that started to like show our human depravity where people were like, there's a, somebody else, I'll just wait for them to do it. Right? I'm not gonna you know, jump in and volunteer at this moment or do this thing. And so that, that didn't serve the church well. Now, that's not to say that they did everything wrong. There were a lot of good things that had happened in that, but it shows the point that we're making here When we're left to ourselves, if we don't have a reason to work, we're not going to work. We're just going to hang out. Bad theology is often used to justify what people want to do and how they want to do it. The idleness was probably caused, in other words, by a combination of their own nature and their misunderstanding of the truth. It wasn't all one or the other, it was a combination of these two things, their nature and a misunderstanding. So we know the problem, we know the cause is their nature and misunderstanding. So what is the solution that Paul would propose? His his answer really comes in two pieces. The first is through knowledge and the second is through obedience. Know the truth, live it out, right? That's very Pauline. If we haven't caught on to the reality of how he writes, he often is saying, this is the truth, this is how you should live. This is the truth, this is how you should live. So first we think of knowing the truth. Paul begins by teaching the Thessalonians that the truth about Christ's return. You see this in the first two chapters of 2 Thessalonians the main thing that he wants them to be sure of is to know that Christ has not yet come back. As we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, he tells them not to be deceived by those who tell them otherwise. But there is more that they, they must understand. Paul wants to clarify several things about the second coming. First, he says that when Christ returns, we will all know it. We will all know it. There will be no confusion, no doubt. It will be the most obvious and clear thing in all of human history. Think about that, right? Okay. Maybe we can think of like a historical moment that just seems very accurate to us in this exact moment, right? Like we could say certainly Russia and Ukraine are at war with each other, right? We, we, can, we know that, right? There are, there are facts, there are multiple reports that are justifying that, that claim. Just as that's a reality, think about the return of Jesus, it's going to be much more of a reality. There's gonna be no shadow, no doubt, no misunderstanding, absolutely, abundantly, clearly, Jesus is here. And not just for one particular nation, but for the whole world, the whole world will know he is back. So the Thessalonians, you know, <laughs> like us, we, we may have seen movies at times of where this is like reenacted. They worried, right? That they missed something. They were like, oh man, we missed the return of Jesus. We, we missed the rapture. We missed something, right? <laughs> but they don't need to worry that they've missed it or that it's already happened or that they needed to work hard to figure out when it happens. The first thing Paul tells them is that when Jesus returns, everyone will know it. Second, he says before Christ returns, there will be persecution led by someone Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Okay, so there's gonna be someone who leads This persecution, who's known as the man of lawlessness. When we think of the third thing, I'll explain some more on each of these. The third is that Christians already know in advance that Christ will defeat the man of lawlessness. So when it comes to this persecution, Christ is not only going to defeat him, he's going to just judge the persecutors and vindicate his people. So again, there's three ideas. Christ's return will be clear to the whole world. Christ's return will be preceded by persecution is the second idea. And the third is that Christ will win. He will be victorious, okay? So, When we think of the return of Jesus, Paul teaches with clarity, again, that that Jesus is going to return in his first letter of Thessalonians. Paul wrote in that letter, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. So he's reiterating his teaching here. He's saying in chapter 1, Paul's describing the day of Christ's return as the day when the Lord Jesus is revealed with his mighty angels from the heavens. And a day that Christ will be marveled at by all those who have believed. And then he goes on to say that discerning whether Christ has really returned will not be hard at all. Where it's like we will marvel at the loud command the voice of an archangel, the trumpet call, the blazing fire, the powerful angels, and most of all, the presence of Christ himself. So his language, whether it's metaphorical or he's using literal descriptions, whether these are just pictures to point us to some reality or actual depictions of what is going to happen, what he's making clear is that it's not going to have any confusion. So Jesus will return. It will be abundantly clear. But that second idea was that we need to know that Christ's return will be preceded by persecution. And that persecution is going to be led by that man of lawlessness. So in chapter 2, verse 3, Christ's return says, Will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So, who is the lawless one? That's often the question. Is it some world leader whose name we know? Have you guys ever heard, like, these claims, right? I, re- I went to this, um, this school called Word of Life, right, up in New York, and uh, it's it's a Bible school. Caleb went there for a year as well. Rachel went there for a year as well. And they run these summer camps. So there's this guy who taught um, Revelation, and he used to say that, Tony Blair was the Antichrist, the Prime Minister of England, right? Like, <laughs> we were like, okay, maybe he's not, like, the most admirable person to look to, but really? <laughs> we're going we're to call him the Antichrist? Yeah, he made... I, I don't know if it was in jest. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that it was in jest. There was a sense that he was pretty serious about what he was saying, too, though. And it was... A little alarming to us because we're like, this is what Jesus says. This is what Paul is saying. And now you're saying something with certainty that scripture doesn't say with certainty. Mm-hmm. Now, what we know clearly is that there's going to be someone who's leading the charge. Right? But contrary to popular opinion, Joe Biden is not the Antichrist. Donald Trump is not the Antichrist. Okay? They are sinful, broken men who need the gospel but we can't say with absolute certainty that they're the sons of destruction leading the way now are they enacting some pretty horrible evil actions probably you know, we, we could we could probably say say that actually with more certainty than we could uncertainty, but to go as far to say that they're the Antichrist or that it's a particular world leader is probably unwise. Paul doesn't do that. But he does describe the person who is known as the son of destruction. Chapter 2 verse 4, "He who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he may be revealed in his time." So he's going to be someone who denies everybody else, denies what's godly. It also says that he's going to deceive others, like in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Sometimes we think of the end of time. We think of the the person who's leading the charge and we're just like ultimate wickedness. We're going to see that and we're just going to know it with certainty. Here's the reality. Satan works with deception. Think of... Think of the backs of the garden. Genesis chapter 3. Right? Here's something that was good that God created. And Satan led Adam and Eve in rebellion against God with something that was good. Uh, no, here, this for you. Um, he, he gave them something that was good and said, here's what's better. Right? That's the way deception works sometimes. It's not so much... Here's what's obvious and evil and against all the things of the Lord. It sometimes can be in the light of, here's something good. Here's a twist of something that we think is better. So, somebody who's leading destruction. Okay, I I think it's printing down. So... We're going to see that he's going to deceive others. We know that Christ's return is going to be clear, that Christ's return is also going to be preceded by persecution. But the third thing that we need to know without any shadow of doubt is that Jesus will be victorious. When it comes to the end times, we need to know that Jesus will be victorious. Paul does not warn the Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness in order to worry them He warns them to reassure them. And he does so because he says that the appearance of persecution and evil is to be expected for the Christian. It is not a surprise to God, and it's not a sign of God's weakness or Satan's strength. Remember how Paul introduced the man of lawlessness back in chapter 2, the son of destruction. The man of lawlessness and his persecutors have already failed. God has already defeated them. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in this time. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by his appearance of his second coming. Okay. What, what a wonderful truth. Okay. I love the way that that verse explains it. He will kill him by what? By the breath of his mouth, right? (laughs) what an image, right? Morning breath is bad. But this is even worse than morning breath, right? This is like something to tell your kids like, hey, listen, Jesus is going to defeat this guy with the breath of his mouth. And they're going to be like, what? It's like, yeah, try that on your sibling. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) see how it plays out. But that's what we need to know. Jesus is returning. Everyone's going to know it. Persecution is going to come before his return. And ultimately, we need to take heart in the fact that Jesus is victorious. It's not even that he's going to be victorious. He is victorious. He is already won. So the first thing he tells them is know the truth. But then he also tells them that they need to obey the truth. With knowledge in hand, Christians are called to be obedient to the truth. So if we go back to the problem at hand, the Thessalonians are idle, right? They, they're just waiting for Jesus' to return, thinking it's not going to be that big of a deal. But they must follow God's call to work. It's amazing, isn't it? How we go from something as mystifying a, of the man of lawlessness to something as prosaic as work. They're all connected. Paul writes in chapter three, verse six, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus that you keep away from any brother who is walking idly and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And then he says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he's saying, in other words, get back to work. Work for the Lord. And he goes on to say, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy. But warn him as a brother. This matter is a serious matter. Obedience is not optional. So it's interesting that Paul says here, not to treat this guy like an enemy, but to treat him like a brother, right? Because at times when we think, okay, this person is not walking with the Lord, what do we want to do? We just want to cut our ties, right? It's like, I'm washing my hands of this. I don't want to see them at work. Uh, for for the Lord. I want to see the Lord work in them. But ultimately, we're kind of like hands off from the interaction. Now, if we're to walk out what the Bible actually talks about in caring for one another, we do need to actually exercise some caution, some exhortation, and a willingness to try to help people walk in obedience and godliness, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we force them And it doesn't mean ultimately that their obedience to the Lord is our responsibility, but it does mean that if we take the call to care for one another seriously, like the scripture says, that we're going to try. We're going to try to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer to do his work in a way that is useful for his glory. So this is a fine line of discernment, guys. There are going to be times where you're going to be like, I really feel... Like, I've got a relationship with this person in the church, and I need to help them. Maybe they're growing in idleness, and I I just feel this responsibility that I need to, like, come in and say something, right? And that might be overwhelming and abundantly clear, and your relationship might actually be really useful, and you might be the person who's in the position to say the thing that they need to hear in a way that they need to hear it for their good. There are also times where the opposite of that is true. You might be the last person who needs to say that to anybody. (laughs) And I can say often as the pastor of the church that the hard thing is when we're trying to like encourage people in a way to obey the Lord. By the time it gets to me in the conversation, it's often when the problem has escalated to a a large portion and now there needs to be like serious intervention. Right. I'd love to be uh, responding and not reacting to situations all the time. Now, that's not to say that it's anybody's fault in that it's just a reality that sometimes comes with the territory is when I get involved, then it's like ultimatum time. I don't like that. <laughs> I want to be more um, leading in a way where I'm saying, hey, from the beginning, this is good. And here's an idea. Walk in obedience to the Lord. Trust God. Be with him. Listen to this counsel. That person's saying something really useful for you to hear right now i 'm really appreciating this. I need to hear this follow me let 's obey Christ together right it, it's usually better at the the beginning than it is later on right because later on they're responding often with defensiveness right or a like sense of, of pride at times or like an unwillingness so There could be times where the Lord's calling you to be useful and you might be the right person for the moment. There could be times where you're the wrong person for the moment. So how do you discern that? Relational wisdom. And when in doubt, get a phone out, call your elders. (laughs) I think that's the best thing to do. I don't know what to do in this situation. So what should I do? Ask for godly wisdom from your elders. Caleb's got great relational wisdom and he's really good at figuring out all the tech things right now i can see him he's working hard his brain looks like it's ready to spontaneously combust but beyond the tech stuff he's got great personal relational wisdom that's a great uh way to to think through caring for others so we think of the problem the cause to their problem some things that they needed to be clarified on, right? Knowing the truth, living out the truth. How did the Thessalonians fall into this is a really good underlying question, Well, let's be honest. It's not entirely clear how the Thessalonians could possibly have made the mistake in thinking that the Lord had come back. Can you imagine if you made this mistake this past week? Thinking about what happened this week, and you go... What if I had thought the Lord had come back? And I just said, "Forget it it's all done. I don't need to do anything. Thursday was a really good day. Maybe that's because Jesus came back. <laughs> We're looking back on our weeks i I don't think so i I think if you've been instructed as a Christian that we should know without a shadow of doubt, the things that Paul's laying out here. But we shouldn't think that this was all simply a matter of human misunderstanding. One of the crucial things that we need to understand in this little letter is that all the language that's used here is about a relationship with God. The Thessalonians had a relationship with God, but didn't fully understand it. I think if we notice God's role in this letter, we will better understand how this misunderstanding could have happened. It really comes down to the fact that they misunderstood not only what Paul was saying about the second coming, but they misunderstood how they relate to God in the present, how we relate to God in the present. In chapter three, there's this little phrase that's repeated. It says, the Lord be with you. This is a simple phrase of blessing or what some would call a wish prayer. But when we consider what the prayer actually is, it says it is a prayer for God to bless the church by accompanying him or accompanying them with his presence. Not only that, notice what Paul promises God will do with this. Chapter three, verse three, he will establish you and guard you against evil. So God is with them. He strengthens them. He protects them. That sounds like a relationship, doesn't it? And Paul's explicit language elsewhere about knowing God. Paul and these Thessalonians have come to know God and they have been given eternal life. That is why Paul can so openly write about being loved by God. Chapter three, Paul refers to the love of God in verse five. And a few verses before that, he specifically addresses them, you brothers, beloved by the Lord. Chapter two, verse thirteen. He speaks of them as of or he speaks of God as our Father who loved us in chapter two, verse sixteen. So it's very clear they have a relationship with God presently. Perhaps we can perceive Paul and the Thessalonians' relationship with God most clearly in the language of prayer scattered throughout the letter. As we see this in three ways, Paul first thanks God. He makes requests of God, second. And finally, he asks the Thessalonians to pray for him. So he says first that he thanks God for what? For the Thessalonians' faith, for their hope and their love. I see this in chapter one. Second, Paul Ask God to bless the lives of the Thessalonians. At the very beginning of the letter, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end, he writes, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. He prays for at least two things. First is for God's direction to love. And... God's direction in their perseverance. So, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, chapter 3, verse 5, and to the steadfastness of Christ. So, the ultimate direction that we need as Christians is the direction into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Second, he prays for God's strength for these Thessalonians. May the Lord himself, our God and Father, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God's encouragement and strength are not given to us indiscriminately. They have a purpose to build us up into Christ's glorifying deeds and words. He does pray for their success, too. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's praying that they be directed to God's love and perseverance, that they be given God's strength and that they would have success in following the Lord. So there's this present reality of their relationship with God and a present reality for us in our relationship with God. But there's also a future reality in their relationship with God and our relationship with God as well. So a couple of things to say here about this. The first thing we need to see About the future reality of their relationship and our relationship with God is that Christ is going to sit in judgment. Christ will sit in judgment. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, makes this clear. How is Paul going to, or how is God going to judge the world? For those that obey and know Him and have faith in Him, there's life. For those that disobey, notice how He talks about vengeance for the Lord in chapter one, verse eight, chapter two, he talks about condemnation, right? So vengeance, condemnation. So first we understand the reality that Christ will sit in judgment. Second is the reality that Christ will save his own people in our, our future relationship with God. There is judgment, but there is salvation in Christ alone. Christ will save us. So what do we have to look forward to? What will Christ's return accomplish? Chapter two says that God is going to gather his own people, that God will count Christians worthy of his kingdom, as a, according to chapter one, and that God will give relief to Christians who are troubled. So there's a present reality of our relationship with God and a future reality of our relationship with God. Three things we should learn in light of the letter of 2 Thessalonians. First, I'd say we should work. Application number one, we should work. One thing we can take clearly from this letter is that we should work. We're created in the image of God. We're created to work. So remember, work is not a result of the fall, okay? Toiling in our labor is a result of the fall. But work is not a result of the fall. Work is what God has given to us to do, right? Think of the call to Adam, chapter 2 of Genesis. He was called to work the ground and keep it, okay? So that command to work was already established prior to the fall. So we ought to work knowing that our work is not a call into horrible rebellion or the fruit of sin, but that it is called and designed by God for his purposes, and his glory. Second, we should learn to live wisely. As we live in the world, we should live wisely. The Thessalonians erred in their obedience to God because they erred in their understanding. They thought wrongly, and so they lived wrongly. So theology is not unrelated to life. Theology isn't just all the stuff you can know. It's taking what you know and actually living it out. All right. so let's be Pauline. Let's know the truth and let's live out the truth. Know the truth, live out the truth. Live wisely. How do we live wisely? Well, we, we have to have an understanding of God's word. If we don't have an understanding of the scripture, we can't live in wisdom. We've got to live wisely. And I think the third thing we learn from the book of 2 Thessalonians, is that we should live waiting. We should live waiting. We should spend every day of our lives waiting eagerly and expectantly for Christ's return. The Thessalonians forgot this. They thought Jesus already right, come back. So they said, we're good. But guys, we need to wait. Not only in a way where we're just sitting and twirling our thumbs, but Really, the idea is eagerly and expectantly. I I know it's unlikely that anyone that's here this morning has stopped working because he or she has thought that the Lord has returned. Okay, I I know that that's not your reality at this moment. Yet there's a similarity between the Thessalonians and, and us. These ancient Christians were not working because they thought that they had it all. They thought that they had reached the pinnacle of faith. The Lord had returned, and they already had everything Christ would give. That is how they were deceived. We're deceived like the Thessalonians when we think that, and live like, we already have everything that Christianity offers. And when we think and live as if the great summation has already come. Either a wrong liberty, doing the things we should not do, or a wrong complacency, leaving undone the things we should do. That's what always follows from these things. In the Thessalonians' case, complacency followed. Unfortunately, many of us have stopped waiting just like the Thessalonians did. And when that happens, our faith in the next life slips into faith In this one, we're striving for spiritual health, is replaced by striving for good stewardship of our physical bodies. Visions of God are replaced by visions of our earthly future or our children's future. The hope of heaven is replaced by the hope of a good life. Desire for our Creator God is replaced by desire for creatures. Unbelief can creep in and gain the upper hand so easily. So one begins by believing in this age as well as the next. Concentrating on this age rather than the next. Being concerned with this age instead of the next. Thinking less of the next. Deemphasizing the next. Questioning the next. Ignoring the next. Forgetting the next. Eventually denying the next. Next. So, as Christians, we can no longer live for the fulfillment of our desires here and now. We live instead working and laboring honorably. We give ourselves to caring for others, even at great personal cost, because this life no longer has to bear the weight of all our hopes, all our desires, or all of our expectations. Without the certainty of Christ's return, it is not at all certain that we can live as Paul exhorts us to live in this little letter that is 2 Thessalonians. So where's our hope? In this life presently in Christ and in what's to come. He's coming back, friends. And when he comes back, there is going to be restoration and wholeness and completion. But our hope isn't necessarily that that's the reality at this moment, but that it's coming, right? Right? Because if we thought that it already came, we'd come into tomorrow and we'd pull up the news headlines and we'd fall yet again. Everything's always falling apart unless we put our hope in the anchor that is in Christ. So 2 Thessalonians has a lot to teach us. And particularly these ideas that we should, li- we should work, live wisely, and live with eager, expectant waiting. Do you think of the glory of Jesus and what is to come or just the glory of Jesus in the here and now? It's got to be both. Let's look forward to what is to come as we press on in the reality of the day. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter of 2 Thessalonians, what we can learn from this. Pray as we worship together with the church that we would worship with eager expectation and hope. Help us to glorify you. Help us to serve you. Help us to serve one another well, to push each other on, to keep away from idleness, and to trust that you are at work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.